I'll tell you something I love about being in France, in addition to some seriously delicious butter, and that is the wide selection of wines I can find in France for low prices. It can be much more difficult to source those same bottles back in the States, and that's why I love to buy wines out of France with Ideal Wine. I have bottles shipped to me, hassle-free. It's easy. Ideal Wine has a new auction every week and is a great source for iconic names like Ouette, Louis Roeder, and Domaine Lefleve, as well as rising stars like Arnaud Lachaud, Gonon, and Tissot. Find the wines you'd rather be drinking at idealwine.com. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com and have the wine shipped to you in the States. Use the promo code FIRST, F-I-R-S-T, for $15 off your first order of $150 or more. Hey, that's $15 you could save, and that is some good butter money. See for yourself at Ideal Wine. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Thousand years ago, when humans in the Fertile Crescent were just switching to agricultural societies, a glacier retreated northward over New York and left behind unique soils, especially on Long Island's forks. Today, several types of loam covered the North Fork. Back in the 1920s, these soils were used mostly for potato farming, but today, the North Fork of Long Island can claim over 40 years of winemaking history. John Wickham grew vinifera grapes in the 60s and sold them at his farm stand along with orchard fruits. Inspired by his success, the first commercial vineyard, planted in 1973 by Alex and Louisa Hargrave, made some serious headway for the region. Their grapes of choice? Cabernet Sauvignon, Pinot Noir, and Sauvignon Blanc. They founded their winery in 1975, and today, about 40 years later, there are 47 wineries on the North Fork. Part of this growth can be attributed to the Farm Winery Act of 1976, which made it much easier for wineries around the state to begin operations. Growth can also be attributed to the North Fork's similarities with the climate in Bordeaux, which lies just on the other side of the Atlantic. Early industry seminars on Long Island tended to focus on similarities between the North Fork and Bordeaux, and a conscious effort to explore this affected vineyard plantings and winemaking choices. Waters around the North Fork create a maritime climate that gifts the region a long growing season, which is perfect for grapes that take a bit longer to ripen, usually richer reds, evidenced by the Hargrave's early success with Cabernet. The South Fork is exposed to the brunt of any weather that comes in off the ocean, and it tends to buffer the North Fork from extreme weather conditions. In addition to a focus on Bordeaux-style reds, the region produces a variety of wines, including sparklers, high-quality aromatic varieties, sherry-like wines, dessert wines, and some intriguing Chardonnay. Because the North Fork is still a relatively new wine region in the U.S., there is an air of the experimental frontier. Though Bordeaux-like similarities have been pointed out and explored, the communal creation of identity is still being teased out. 
As a whole, the region seems to have a dedication to sustainability, with many parts of the sustainable spectrum represented, including biodynamic farms like Shin and Makari, and sustainable wineries with a dedication to local yeasts like Bedell. The North Fork is also a fascinating place with many different little nooks and pockets. One moment you're surrounded by buzzing bees in the middle of a seemingly endless field, the next passing rows of neatly manicured vineyards, and before you know it, you reach the boat-speckled waterfront. In 2011, the Fine Winery Law again changed the wine landscape of New York, though repercussions are just starting to make themselves known. This law made it easier for large wineries to operate multiple tasting rooms, and the law also made the prospect of custom-crush winemaking more feasible, which could really change how things are done in the long run. With the expensive land on the North Fork, wineries were previously limited to families or companies who could make a large capital investment, but with more custom-crush options available, it might be easier for more winemakers to get started, and we might start to see many more non-estate labels from the region. But to really learn about the North Fork and what might be in store for the future, let's hear the perspective from a Long Island wine veteran. It's not enough to make great wine. You also have to reach the consumer that appreciates that wine. And that's where Offset is an incredible asset. Offset is an independent brand design and commerce technology company that connects with wineries on a human level to help them connect with consumers on a human level. Offset is based in wine country and staffed by creative strategists and technologists who are superb at helping create and evolve wine brands through visual identity and package design, developing the look, feel, and tone of your web content, as well as building beautiful and effective websites powered by their proprietary e-commerce platform, Offset Commerce. That's why leaders like Frog Sleep, Grace Family Vineyards, and Rain Winery already rely on Offset. Reach out to the brilliant team at Offset at offsetpartners.com. That's O-F-F-S-E-T partners with an s.com offset is focused on the wine industry and can embrace the nuanced needs of your wine brand kareem masood of pomanuk on the show hello sir how are you how are you levy Nice to see you. Same here. Good to be here. So you were born in Kuwait. I was born in Bahrain, but my parents, uh, shortly after I was born, moved to Kuwait, and uh, we spent a few years in Kuwait. When I say, I mean, I was a newborn toddler, and by the time we left Kuwait, I was about five years old. But Kuwait is where my father first made wine. And how did that come about? Well, Kuwait's a dry country, dry literally, but also dry. You can't you can't legally buy alcohol, but a very vibrant black market where you could buy alcohol or just make your own and uh that's why my father did he, he tried making beer and wine the beer was really not so good and the wine wasn't a whole lot better but it was the first time he actually uh got you know got his hands dirty making wine and what era is this i was born in 72 and so by the time we were in kuwait that would have been sort of the sort of mid 70s basically and what was your yeah. dad like at the time he was basically just more or less had more or less just started his career at ibm and uh, given his Middle Eastern heritage, he was born and raised in Beirut, Lebanon, 
he uh, started off with IBM in the Middle East. They they gave him an opportunity to that they, he sort of jumped on to launch some of their business in the Middle East and was based there until he got transferred to to New York in the late seventies. So he ended up coming to the states. Yeah, yeah, with my mom and my one brother. So at the time it was just uh, my brother Salim and I, and then uh, and then after my parents had moved to uh, Stanford, Connecticut, where we all grew up. They had a third child who was my youngest brother, Nabil. He was born in, in Connecticut in 81. And what was your mom like? Uh, my mom was born and raised in the Pfalz in, in Germany. And that's a big part of the uh, sort of equation as to why my parents got into wine. You know, her mother's side of the family had been in wine in the Pfalz for generations, going all the way back to the 17th century. And, and to this day, she actually still has relatives who are, who are vintners in the Pfalz. And your dad started to get more and more interested as well. Right. And my, my father, very much Francophile, having grown up in Lebanon, being a former French colony, and he sort of grew up uh, appreciating all things French, speaking French as his first tongue, having studied in Paris for three years, and sort of falling in love with all things French, including the wines. So he had actually been in France for a while as well, right. as yeah, a student. As a student. Because although we think of Lebanon as in the Middle East, it was a French colony for a long time. Exactly. And then as a student, he actually went to Philadelphia, where he got his MBA at, at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania, where I ended up going myself as an undergrad. Uh, but that's where he met my mother. She was an undergrad at Chestnut Hill College. And so you have these two, uh, you know, they would have never met otherwise, obviously, but uh, they met in Philly. And the rest is history. But how is it that they ended up starting a winery in Long Island? They always had a romantic dream of doing something agrarian. Back before the Civil War started in Lebanon, they actually sort of uh, entertained the idea of becoming silkworm farmers. This is back in, uh, I mean, I, I was maybe just born, and so I, I wouldn't know I wasn't there. But from what they've told me, you know, this was like uh, late 60s, early 70s, they had these ideas. And, you know, but my father being pragmatic and a realist said, you know, I'm not going to give up my job, my career at IBM. Uh, but they always had this notion that wouldn't it be wonderful to get into farming somehow. And they realized the farming lifestyle they really wanted was a vintner's life, having spent time with my mother's family in the Pfalz. After they got married, they had a big celebration in, in Germany in the Pfalz. And there's this, I think it's called the, the Riesige Fuss in, in Bad Durkheim. There's this giant barrel and they got married inside there, and they had the celebration with uh, my mom's whole family in the Falls, where, where, my, where they really became exposed to the uh, vintner's life and lifestyle. And so they actually considered maybe looking for an existing um, property in Germany. But again, it wasn't really in the cards with my father's career. By this time, we were in the States. My dad was, had a career at, at IBM in New York. And so... Um, that was around that time. They read an article in the New York Times about Alex and Louisa Hargrave, who were the you know the pioneers on Long Island. Uh, my parents came out and visited them, and sort of caught the bug. My I had relatives. I still have relatives in New Jersey to this day. So my parents didn't right away settle on the North Fork of Long Island. They actually explored the tri-state area, but they finally closed on our farm in in uh, 1983. What was that like for them? I mean, was that a big life change or? You know, I was uh, I was about 10 years old at the time, and I sort of vividly remember being a 10-year-old kid in suburban Connecticut, and there was this sort of recognition that I, I, I think our lives are about to change. <laughs> uh, 
And uh, so we did very much go from being kind of your, you know, your typical suburban family with two or three kids and a dog, which, you know, we, we had as well, the golden retriever. And um, we went from just, you know, our quote unquote normal life in, in the suburbs to still having that life. But plus there was now this farm that we started going to. And especially back then we were adolescents and teenagers. And, you know, my joke was like, you know, my, my friends and I, we all, we all had chores like mowing the lawn. Except in our our case, we had to do it twice. We had to go mow the lawn at home, mow the lawn at the the second home that we had on Long Island, and on top of it, we had to go out and work in the vineyard. You know, uh, and by the way, it's quote, you know, a famous quote from the Bible too, uh, Matthew, where there's a, a a saying in the Bible, "Go out and work in the vineyard." And so we did that. We and so um, at the time, the point is, you know, my brothers and I are like, this isn't a whole lot of fun. We're just just a bunch of work. And you kind of didn't really see the light at the end of the tunnel. And, you know, by the time I turned 18, by that, that was the time when we first started making wine, 1989, 1990. And uh, so you planted a vineyard and then it, you know, it takes a while. Yeah, right. And then there's a lag time between when you guys are actually making wine of your own in your own facility. Exactly. I mean, and, and, you know, it made perfect sense. My parents approached, they were cautious getting into it. Because, you know, in 1983, it was by no means a sure thing. And even today, getting into the wine business anywhere today is is not a sure thing. In fact, that brings up one of my father's best sayings. He has, he has all kinds of sayings. But uh, winemaking is less of an art and more of a partnership with Mother Nature. Unfortunately, she's the senior partner. And so, you know, anywhere you're getting into the anything agricultural globally today you're, is no sure, sure thing with, with the climate changing the way it is. In any case, they finally started off as growers, as you say. They you want to wait a good. I think you know the general rule of thumb is three years from the time you plant from the to the time you can expect to to pick a, a decent quality crop. And uh, and that was actually 1985, which was the year of Hurricane Gloria. And you know I remember that too. We that was before the winery was built. With my parents still had the old uh, potato barn and a garage that was adjacent to it, where they they literally made garage wine. And, and a, a manual crusher and uh, and a press, a basket, an old basket press, where they made uh, literally their their first vintage from the fruit, you know, of the fruit of their labors. And then, um, so they were they started off as growers, and that's what I was saying. For my brothers and I, we were adolescents, teenagers, and we're like, this kind of sucks. We just come out here all the time and work, and uh, I mean, you know, appreciated what our parents were were going after and what their you know whole endeavor was about. But it, for us, it was kind of like we wanted to hang out with our friends back in Connecticut, and uh, but we, you know, we definitely uh, pitched in quite a bit at that point too. You know what they I mean, say about family wineries? They're a partnership, but the kids are not the senior partner. Right. You know? <laughs> exactly. And so then, 1988 happened. 88 was an outstanding year on, for Long Island, uh, outstanding vintage, and uh, my parents weren't set up at all really to make anything other than garage wine. I mean, they, they still weren't set up to make wine commercially, but that sort of gave them the impetus to say, let's, okay, you know, they were like, okay, we're ready. Let's, let's go ahead and renovate the barn and we're going to, we're going to convert this into a modern turnkey, you know, state of the art winemaking facility. And so by 1990, it was ready. And so our very first vintage was in 1990 as an estate winery. And although the very first Pomenoc label was an 89 barrel fermented Chardonnay, which, uh, because my parents had already made that decision back in 88 that they're going to launch the brand. 
And so that wine was vinified at Bridgehampton Winery, which was, does not exist anymore. And so they launched the Pamanok brand in 1990. We really opened our doors in 91 uh, to the ta- you know to the winery to the tasting room. And since 1990, we've been uh, an estate winery. We started off with four labels back then: barrel fermented Chardonnay, dry Riesling, Cabernet Sauvignon, and Merlot. And today, over the years, not necessarily all in one year, but we we now produce we have produced over time something like 30 different labels from eight varieties that we currently grow, four reds and four whites. And they're vinifera. They're all vinifera, yeah. Because yeah. some people might have done hybrids, I don't know. Yeah, um, on Long Island, not really. There's like a smattering of, of hybrids uh, and native varieties. Uh, I'm, I'm, you know, honestly, I'm not even sure what the, uh, but it's, you know, 1% or less or less of the total acreage. It's not like upstate where you're going to see a lot more. So you're born in the 70s, so about the time of the 90s roll around and the winery's really getting going, you're probably making some life changes of your own. You're probably making some decisions about your own future. Exactly. I mean, I graduated from high school in 91. I started at Penn in the fall of 91. And uh, exactly. And so I, I went away to college. Uh, my brother Salim went uh, away the next year as well. And... Um, Actually, while I was a junior at Penn, and I also I went I also went to Wharton to the undergraduate school, the business school, and uh, so I was very much on a on a Wall Street track. In fact, I summered working at a mutual fund here in the city. How was that? I, it was fun. It was a good experience. It was you know what I was interested in as far as that that whole world. But you know, I was obviously involved in my my parents endeavor since since its inception like literally i literally walked in my father's footsteps when i was 10 years old when he was planting those first vines in 1983 he was putting in stakes and i was like dropping the stakes walking behind him helping him with the you know i was only 10 but you know child labor but you know i i have those memories and anyway i you know i watched the whole progression and and um you know when when my parents launched the brand they launched it at you know sherry lehman uh, when they were on, still on Park Avenue, places like La Caravelle, listed Pomanoc, and I was excited. And so when I was a junior at Penn, I told my parents, I had a conversation with them. I'm like, look, you know, when I graduate, I'm actually, I'd like, I'd like to work for you. I'd like to join you. And I think that kind of caught them off guard. That, and the, their response was like, look, that's, that's really not why we've sent you to an Ivy League university. You know, we think you'd do better. On your own. I mean, they, they honestly were, they, because Pamanak was still a very young enterprise, they weren't sure that I could make the sort of living for myself that I could if, you know, with an Ivy League degree, I could do a lot, a lot better for myself. And that, they, they, were, they were thinking in my best interest. But the point was, I mean, I was already so jazzed at the time about what, you know, the sort of incipient industry on Long Island and, and, and what my parents had already accomplished at Pamanak and um, but why do you yeah. think you were jazzed? I mean, what was it that was really? It was, you know, the I think really more than anything is this pioneering aspect. Like it, it's something new. It, you know, I, I remember thinking as I mean, I was I was a kid and I was I, I was skeptical. Like, can can you really grow wine on Long Island? To make good. I mean, why would New Yorkers buy Long Island wine? Because New Yorkers want the best of the best, and why why would they buy? You know, it, it, I just had the same skepticism that a lot of people had, and some still have, because they they don't know that that it's possible to grow world class wines on Long Island. 
But I just, you know, marveled and respected and admire and still do my parents very much for, for taking on the, the whole leap of faith in the first place. But as my father has said many times, because he, you know, retired, he got what, what he calls a bronze parachute from IBM. And anyway, he says, it's not about the money, it's about the lifestyle. And, and that's what resonated with me as well over time is like, you know, this is just such a wonderful life. I mean, if you can make a living growing wine, I mean, that's not a bad deal. That's really, uh, and in fact, I mean, I, I absolutely feel that way. And I think everyone in my family feels the same way. It's just a, a privilege to be able to do what we do and make a living doing what we do. It, it's something we don't take for granted. But not every region has hurricanes. So, I mean, there's got to be some challenges. As absolutely. Well. I mean, you know, and I think every, every producer around the world uh, has their own challenges, whether it's unique to their terroir, whether it's unique to their family and so on. And for sure, we have, we have our own set of challenges, and one of them is hurricanes. We've never had hailstorms until 2003. We had a pretty severe hailstorm in 2003, had a less severe one in 2010. But on balance, actually, the hurricanes have turned out to be not that bad. I mean, we've been doing this now for 32 years as growers, and the worst was probably Gloria in 85. There was Bob in 91. There was Irene in 11, which was kind of a dud. Uh, 11 proved to be pretty challenging because everything that happened after Irene. And then Sandy, of course, was a big deal. Actually, though, it was not a big deal for us on Long Island because, it, first of all, it occurred after we'd finished picking our grapes, most, most importantly. And, uh, and also because the, the bigger impacts of Sandy were actually closer to the city, as New Yorkers well know, and, and on the south shore of Long Island. And it really, Sandy didn't really affect us that much uh, other than you know, branches coming down around, around my parents' house and things like that. So what are the significant viticultural challenges of the North Fork? I mean, what's it like? You know, the, the challenges viticulturally are mainly to do with uh, humidity and rainfall in the summer. There are times where we've, you know, sort of prolonged spells of humidity, day and night, and that can make life really challenging, especially with regard to powdery mildew in the vineyard. And that's why, as, as a whole, on Long Island, and, and, you know, certainly speaking for our viticulture at Pamanok, we've become obsessed and very meticulous about the viticulture. My brother, Nabil, is the vineyard manager today, and uh, we go through great great, great efforts to achieve the sort of canopy management we're looking for with. And, you know, it's no secret what, what a lot of growers are looking to do, which is to, to maintain an open and airy canopy. And the way I like to describe it to people is you want every leaf, every grape cluster to be able to see the sun and to feel the wind. And uh, that is a huge starting point. If you can start off with that, then you're just so much less reliant other intervention and that helps mitigate, you know, some of the pressure that we that we do get sometimes in terms of these prolonged spells of humidity. Because if you yeah. start to get mildew, then you have to treat the mildew. Right, right, exactly. And you know, growers around the world have to contend with powdery and downy. Uh, but you know, in in the wetter districts, it's there's more pressure. I mean, it's as simple as that. Same thing with rainfall. We do have years where we have a little bit more rainfall. Other years are are drier. However, you know, we can sort of weather the storm literally when we get a big rain event because we have incredibly well draining soils which is you know huge obviously a huge we wouldn't exist on long island as a wine district if we didn't have the incredibly well draining soils that we have 
So what kind of soils are there? You know, it's the prevailing soil types are sandy loam with a sandy gravelly subsoils. And it's, it, you know, basically Long Island, eastern Long Island is sort of an outwash alluvial deposits from the, the when the last glacier receded in the last ice age, it left this sort of alluvial terrain. And uh, actually, I, I live right by Long Island Sound, and you still see a couple of big boulders, but that's the only place you're going to see them. The rest of eastern Long Island, uh, for the most part, is a sandy loam and then sandy, gravelly subsoils, and you can't really beat that for drainage. And to this day, it still never ceases to amaze me when we have a, a big rain event. You will not see ponding or puddling in the field unless, you know, unless it's, there's ground compaction if, if, if it's a dirt road. But out in the field that's being farmed, you, you rarely ever see ponding or puddling. It's like a giant sieve. It just, it just drains right through. So do you think that that's why people started to choose Bordeaux grape varieties because of those soil types? It, it makes a lot of sense. You know, I can't help thinking to myself when I read about the terroir in Bordeaux that you could literally just, you can almost substitute the word Long Island for Bordeaux and it will read accurately. It's near, it's near the Atlantic. It's a maritime climate. The prevailing topography is mostly flat, and all that sounds like Long Island. And we're almost on the same la- level of latitude, you know, 41 versus 43. And uh, so we have a lot in common, and, and including the prevailing sort of, you know, hu- bouts of humidity are not unknown to northern France as well. So absolutely, Bordeaux varieties make a lot of sense. The, what also kind of makes sense is, is, does Cabernet Sauvignon and Petit Verdot make sense, which we grow too? I mean, the four reds we grow are, are those two, Cab Sauvignon, Petit Verdot, and we also grow Merlot and Cabernet Franc. The later ripening variety is going to be a little bit more challenging on Long Island because it's, it, it is a cool climate. However, you know, with climate change, it's, it's uh, even, bef- you know, when did climate change start is something that we can debate and debate. But we've had, uh, you know, my father and I very much agreed that we certainly would not leave Cabernet Sauvignon out of the equation and the long, you know, out of Long Island Bordeaux Reds because Long Island really has become known for Merlot and Cabernet Franc, but uh, we still th- believe that some of the best Reds we produce are made from Cabernet Sauvignon and Petit Verdot in our best vintages. I mean, it, it, we absolutely do have vintages, and there's a great deal of vintage variation. But in in our strongest vintages, the the Cabs and the Petit Verdot have, you know, we think have made some of our best Reds. Because you've made that assemblage wine in certain right. vintages, and yeah. that has those grape varieties in it. Exactly, that's our Bordeaux-style blend that we we make only in what we call it a grand vintage. And grand vintage is our own moniker, you know, that my father came up with when uh, back in '93, because '93 was just such an outstanding vintage. He said, "I can't put the same label on 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 these wines. I gotta distinguish it somehow." He didn't want to use the word reserve because even in our own wine district, at one producer, reserve was there. Their entry level at another, it was their their high-end wine, and he wanted to come up with something different. And so it's quite simply our way of declaring the vintage. We don't do it every year. We only do it in what we, we deem to have been you know one of our best. What are the harvest times like? Are they pretty consistent year to year, or do you see a lot of variation in the terms of when you harvest? Normally, uh, again, talk about climate change and what's normal and not. We used to, used to pretty traditionally pick in sort of mid to late September Chardonnay, certainly Sauvignon Blanc, and then Reds in, in October. And for the most part, that's still how it is. Um, and it depends on the vintage. But we had vintages like 2010, which was certainly the hottest we've had, 
where everything was, for the whites, everything was two, two to three weeks earlier. Every time I was entering a date and recording stuff in, in our journal for what we're doing in the winemaking department, I was like, this is just so early. And uh, bud breaks have been earlier, you know, four out of the last five years, the bud breaks have been uh, early to, 2010 was very early, full three weeks early, but we're seeing signs of earlier and earlier bud break. Not so much this year. 2015 was kind of, you know, in quotes, back to normal in terms of the timing of the bud break, which has traditionally been the, the first week in May. And, uh, but coming back to your question, I mean, it obviously depends on the varieties, but out of the varieties we grow, uh, Sauvignon Blanc, Chardonnay, mid to late September, followed closely by Riesling and Chenin Blanc. And then we usually proceed that way. We wrap up the whites and then we get into the reds, Merlot, Cab Franc. And then by mid to late October, we're, we're getting into Cabernet Sauvignon, Petit Verdot, and late harvest when we do them. The late harvests are usually also end of October. So how should I understand the planning? You have eight different varieties. Are they in different blocks and different places and different sites? Or are they kind of in a different part of the same vineyard? Or how does it work? We're now farming 80 acres of planted uh, you know, vineyards, vineyards that we've planted over 80 acres. 60 of those acres are contiguous to the winery in Aquabog, uh, which is on the west end of the North Fork. In fact, we're one of the furthest west of, uh, of all the vineyards on the North Fork. And then we have another 20 acres planted three miles, five kilometers away from the winery on Sound Avenue, a little bit further north, closer to the sound. And so there's the, the eight varieties we grow. And by the way, the whites, I don't know if I named them yet, Chardonnay, Chenin Blanc, Riesling, and Sauvignon Blanc. And in any case, they're, uh, they're kind of spread out throughout the property. And you know, my parents started with Chardonnay and Riesling in 1983, right behind the winery. The year after that, they planted Sauvignon Blanc directly behind the winery. And then uh, in the mid to late 80s, they continued with Reds, Cab Sauvignon, Merlot, and Cabernet Franc. And then they ended up uh, acquiring a property across the street on Tuttle's Lane, which was planted by the, the original uh, founders of Jamesport Vineyards. And they had planted a whole bunch of varieties that my parents either knew wouldn't work or they didn't want to grow, like things like Zinfandel and, and Gewürztraminer and um, Pinot Noir, I, be I believe. Uh, all that stuff was getting ripped out, and Chenin Blanc, too. And my father had, actually, had literally begun ripping out the Chenin. And my parents had a young German guy at the time, uh, Uwe Michelfelder, who was uh, basically uh, looking after the vineyard in my, my parents' absence. And he advised my father, he said, Charles, if, if I were you, the, those Shannon vines look happy and healthy, why don't you give him a chance? And the way my father tells the story had as much to do with him running out of time as it did listening to Uva. And uh, in any case, he, he did keep them, about two acres of Shannon planted in 1982. And uh, thank God, because it's turned into, you know, probably our most successful wine. It's one of the ones I like pretty consistently. Yeah, you know. yeah. me too. <laughs> so are those some of your oldest vines then? Yeah. Yeah, they are our oldest. Uh, we also have some Riesling, I believe, in that same block that was planted in 82. Uh, and like I said earlier, my parents started in 83. But yeah, the oldest vines we have were planted in 82. When you pick that material for the stuff that you guys planted for yourself, how did you go about picking it? I mean, did you suitcase clone it? You know, did you go to our nursery? How did your dad pick the vine source material? In the beginning, I mean, it was definitely directly from nurseries. You know, again, in the early 80s, I was a kid. But from, you know, from what I know, um, they uh, dealt with nurseries in Virginia and upstate New York and eventually California. 
And so we've never done the suitcase clone uh, yet, but uh, never say never. But um, but to date, the way we source our plant materials, we deal directly with with nurseries in this country. And uh, at the time when my parents first started, clones were really weren't something that was an option. You just went based on the variety and the rootstock. And then, of, of course, today we've learned a lot more. And uh, we are looking into specific clones planted on specific rootstocks. But we're dealing you know, with nurseries uh, in New York and California today to, to plant our new vineyards. So these days, there's you know, quite a few, both vineyards and wineries on the North Fork. What's it like having a position on the west side of the North Fork? Is that a little bit different than some of the other? It, it is, actually. It's, it's a little bit warmer. And it's, it's uh, statistically significantly warmer. Cornell Cooperative Extension um, has a sort of a, a network of weather stations that they, they maintain and gather weather data. And invariably, it's, it's a little bit warmer. And that is, you know, uh, not surprisingly, it, it, it gives us a bit of an edge with Cabernet Sauvignon and Petit Verdot. Even compared to our, uh, you know, friends and colleagues to the east of us on the North Fork, it's a little bit warmer. And certainly compared to to the South Fork, uh, where it, it can be quite a bit cooler sometimes. So maybe that's why you're having a little bit more success with Cabernet Sauvignon. With Cab Sauvignon and Petit Verdot, for sure. I think you know to make the reds, we we all enjoy drinking from you know Cab, where you want a, a structured, fully ripe flavor, ripeness, phenolic ripeness, alcohol. I mean, you you need you, you know you need the heat. You need heat and sun, and even on you know, where we were on the North Fork, it, it depends on the vintage, you know. But uh, certainly, we feel a little bit favored, and and you know, it was no, it was sheer serendipity on my parents' part. The, at the time when they when they bought the farm, they were one of the, the they were the furthest west, uh, except for Palmer, which is almost equidistant with us to the north. But I mean, they didn't know at the time that that there was this phenomena where it's it's slightly warmer. And, and of course, the same is true as you approach New York City. It gets warmer and warmer and warmer. In fact, there's the, the I've been to the Queens County Farm, and at one point they had Merlot planted there. And uh, I remember being there in September, like early September, and like the fruit was ripening. I was like, oh my God. I was like, on the other hand, this makes sense. Like it's, it's warmer here. And they were like a full two or three weeks ahead of us. What have been some of the learning vintages for you? You talked about some of the vintages that were difficult because of hurricanes and hail but what have been some of the vintages where it maybe affected your own worldview of what it is you are inheriting i mean what have been some of the vintages that you think about a lot 1999 was one of the first vintages where i was there for the whole calendar year of 1999 i started full-time at pamanak in 98 like midway midway through the year so 99 was my first vintage where i was at pamanak 12 months you know full calendar year and 99 was a vintage where sunny, hot, dry summer, it was looking great. Things were looking great. And then, you know, right around Labor Day, it started raining, and it basically didn't stop raining for about six weeks. I mean, you know, it was on and off, but it was just a, a rainy vintage. And it was tough, you know, as any grower knows, uh, when, it's, when you have those kind of conditions, it just becomes really tough. And so we were a little bit down on the vintage, but I, I mentioned it because, you know, the resultant wines, you know, it wasn't like we had to discard the wine. The wines were still decent wines. And, and that's something I've seen again and again, where we've had a tough vintage here, tough vintage there. It's not a disaster. It, it, I mean, it is a tough vintage, but the wines are, they're still decent wines. Um, they're, they're lighter. They're not going to have the same, you know, ripeness of character that you get, you get in a riper vintage. I mean, but uh, they can still be pretty wines. It can be 
perfect food wines. And more recently, you know, with the um, the boom in the rosé market, it's become a great tool to, in a, like in a vintage like 2011, where, you know, I mentioned Hurricane Irene earlier, that was, that was in 2011. Irene itself was, is just a name to mention because people remember that, but Irene itself was kind of a dud for us. It didn't really do much. But after Irene, we had all this warm, wet weather that continued. And on top of it, it wasn't really breezy either. And those, it's kind of like a perfect storm of conditions you don't want. During I like how you use the perfect storm reference in right. the storm. That's good. <laughs> I mean, it's hard to do. You know what I mean? You, you pulled it off well. I thought you carried it good. Um, and so we're, I was faced, and, and, as we all were, uh, on, on Long Island in 11 with uh, very trying circumstances to, to bring in healthy, ripe fruit, which is obviously the name of the game. And, and, and that is the only thing we're dogmatic about at Pamanak is that in order to produce great wine, you have to start with the healthiest, ripest fruit obtainable. So we're dogmatic about the goal, open-minded about the method. So 2011, I mentioned the rosé market. I was like, you know, we don't need to force the red wines this vintage. We Rosé is now a totally uh, great option because in a vintage like that, the reds might not be great for red, but they're like perfect for rosé. And so we made a lot more rosé. We still made some reds. And, you know, I, the, the, some of the 2011 reds, again, again were, were totally decent reds. Lighter. I mean, literally diluted to a certain extent from the vintage, but still... Fun reds, especially if you're if you're into and open-minded about light to medium-bodied reds from Bordeaux varieties and that sort of thing. But we made a ton of rosé that vintage, and that was sort of like you know, uh, for me as a as a winemaker, where we're making all these different wines from different varieties, it's like this is another tool in my toolbox of how how do we how do we continue to craft the wines that that we make and have them be consistently delicious wines. Does that imply that with the vintage, there's also some change in methodology in terms of how you handle grapes in the winery in different years? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, it's. I mean, that is that is you know uh, again this this notion of being a partner with Mother Nature. It's like, okay, what have you got this year? And some you have absolutely no control. I mean, I mean, we work our heart out in the vineyard, uh, and we absolutely believe that the wine is is made in the vineyard. I mean, we grow the wine. But uh, Mother Nature is your partner, and then sometimes you're handed, uh, and it's like, okay, this is what I've got this year, and it's like, I'm, it, you know, as an estate producer, you don't have the the option of saying, well, I'm not gonna, you know, w- w- you got to do something with these grapes, and it's got to be delicious, you know, you you got to make something that's delicious. That that is also an, an imperative that we that we live by, and so absolutely, I mean, the there are certain vintages where. We go into it like 2007, beautiful, kind of similar to 99. It was looking perfect, and we we normally drop some fruit in our in our reds to you know to lower yields. And in 07, we dropped a little bit less because it was it was such an abundant. There was just so much fruit out there. It's like do we really need to drop all this fruit? And um, it's a bit of a gamble. If you have enough heat and sun, you you will ripen it all. And and we did. And 2007, we had some of the highest yields we've had. Especially in our reds, and and some of the highest quality, and it was just it was just an amazing, amazing vintage, and uh, and it's like okay, th- this is what we're getting. We're you know uh, on the plus side, this was a we're getting great stuff this year, and a lot of it, and uh, and it, you know opened up options for me. It's like I can use some of this Merlot, which I did for what, what we call our our Tuttle's Lane Vineyard Merlot. To this day, I think it's one of the best reds we produced. Our 2007 Tuttle's Lane Vineyard Merlot. 
but it also went into our 07 assemblage and it just gave me sort of a, a greater sort of palette of flavors to, to choose from. But not knowing what you're going to do in advance necessarily must be tough in terms of being like, oh, okay, well, this is how many new barrels we're going to need. or uh, Absolutely. You, you yeah. know what I mean? Oh, absolutely. I mean, the, the point about barrels, that's a good, exactly. I mean, uh, any producer, like you just don't know. I mean, one way we sort of try uh, at Pamanok, we've we've tried to strike up relationships with the barrel suppliers themselves, and we have worked out a couple good relationships over time, where we are able to bring in a container. We take some ourselves. You know, our neighbors take some. Uh, we've been aware, a couple times been able to work out deals where we keep the excess. You know, in order to fill the container, we'll warehouse it, and if we need it, we can take it. If someone else needs it, they can take it. Uh, that sort of helps uh, eliminate some uncertainty. But more and more, we're using less and less new oak. You know, you need to replenish your barrel inventory because we retire 5 to 10% a year and replace 5 to 10% a year. So we're always bringing in a little bit. What other changes have there been to the approach in terms of winemaking? Has things shifted a little bit over time? Has your palate changed in terms of what you enjoy? I don't think my palate's really changed uh, in terms of what I enjoy. I think my uh, I think there was a time for me personally where I experienced like when I was really becoming basically becoming a wine professional, basically, where I sort of and this is like in the late '90s when I think there was very much a the American palate was a West Coast palate, and you know if it was a Merlot or a Cab, like it had you know if it was if it didn't taste like a Northern California Merlot or Cab, like it wasn't. You know, so it wasn't it wasn't a good wine, and so there was sort of this. Uh, for me, I had a certain level of, I guess you could say, some amount of insecurity or anxiety. But like, you know, our wines are kind of wimpy, that sort of thing. But then, you know, I also at the same time would go to tastings where I was exposed to um, some of the first growth Bordeaux that I, you know, very rarely had a chance to taste, and I I remember tasting some of them, and you know. Sure, these are great wines, but you know what? They're they they don't strike me as entirely dissimilar from our own. I mean, I, I it was like incredibly mind opening, uh, and, and sort of like uh, I mean, for me personally, my whole approach to my place in the wine industry is uh, on one hand, by I, just by definition, I'm, we're sort of in this underdog category as as a Long Island winery, Long Island winemaker, and. And on one hand, I can see myself having been like, you know, I was on that whole Wall Street track. I could have been a New Yorker being one of those people and saying, oh, Long Island wine, like not really taking it seriously. Um, but I've totally grown up. Uh, it's 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 whole my, my whole, you know, my whole career is is based on the opposite, knowing that we can and we do produce world class wines, delicious wines that, that that marry well with the local cuisine that surrounds us. We, I mean, we have such a rich gastronomic scene um, on eastern Long Island in the greater New York area. I mean, But it seems like the trends in terms of the market for American consumers, at least in New York, have helped you out. Oh, absolutely. Dry rosé becomes more popular. Mm -hmm. You have the option to sell more dry rosé, and it's really helping you out in those leaner vintages. At the same time, people are like, oh, Loire Valley Cab Franc, that tastes good. I like more pyrazines. It, you know, some of these under, mm-hmm. under less ripe or under or less ripe, depending on how you want to refer to it, Cabernet Sauvignon. So I'm digging that. More structure, more tannins. And you're like, hey, we can do that too. So it sounds like the palate of the consumer has shifted in a way that's helped you out. I think, I think it has. I think, 
I think the pendulum, and I think we're you know we're not the only ones to have made that observation. The pendulum has kind of swung back to center in terms of what Amer- the American palate is is into is, is drinking these days away away from having hit the wall on the side of high alcohol to to more moderate wines, and that's right where we where we come in. And it's, so it's been extremely exciting to be a part of. On top of it, you add the whole locavore trend, which you know for for us is always like you know we don't. I mean, it's great. The whole locavore thing is great, but I certainly don't want people buying and drinking our wine just because just because it's local. I want them getting into our wines, appreciating them for what they are, and enjoying them as delicious wines because they're delicious, not necessarily because they're local. But I bet it's hard to create brand identity when the vintages shift a lot and you end up having to make different kinds of wines. Like, I bet it's hard for people to really know what you do. That's true. I mean, that's true. But um, it's no different than other places, you know, other producers around the world that that also have vintage variation. I mean, uh, you know, we we can go on and on about all kinds of examples. But but you're right. I mean, and but and, and, you know, we're a small producer. That's, you know, we're not on the scale of, of we don't want to necessarily produce like a con- you know it depends like i mean we do have wines like our chenin blanc which which in our barrel fermented charlie there are certain wines where there is a le- level of consistency our semi-dry riesling which are uh dry riesling um and then you know the reds you're going to see certainly more more variation uh depending on the vintage but you know isn't, isn't that part of the the fun and the beauty of of wine that it that it is different that the vintages will be different and that vintages matter so what is it like to sell New York wine? I mean, how is that for you in the market? What, what are the challenges? What are the upsides? What's it like? It's fun. You know, it's, it, it is challenging. You, you encounter a whole range of uh, dispositions, you know, people who fully embrace uh, and have no reservations, other people who are completely the opposite, who, who you know, barely realize that we exist or they, they know we do, but they completely ignore us. They get no respect. But in general, you know, it's very exciting right now. And, you know, the analogy has been made many times uh, by myself and others that where we are today is probably not that different from where, you know, Northern California, Napa and Sonoma producers were maybe 40 years ago. I mean, there are big differences in scale. I mean, Napa and Sonoma are just enormous in terms of their size as as a wine industry compared to to, to Long Island specifically and, and New York, the New York wine industry in general. And the metropolis of greater New York City is just so much more enormous than, you know, uh, or at least like San Francisco, not necessarily the whole Bay Area. But, I mean, that analogy has always been present, and that's always been sort of the holy grail of New York wine, especially Long Island wine, is our, our proximity to the city. And more and more over time, it is sort of becoming a reality where where New Yorkers and Long Islanders sort of get it that their Jardin de New York is there. I mean... It, Funny you say that because one of the other parallels for me is Paris and the Loire, right? right? Like Paris drinks a lot of the Loire Valley wine, but for whatever reason, a lot of times when you talk to Parisians, they don't take Loire Valley wine very seriously. They're not like, oh, yeah. you know, what's the great wine of France, the Loire? But they drink yeah. tons of it historically. Right. You know what I mean? So it's like a double-edged thing. Yeah, or, exactly. Exactly. And the other part of the double-edged sword is, you know, this the, the notion of the the quality pyramid that any in any wine district you you analyze, you're going to have a top tier of producers making really outstanding wines and second tier making, you know, anywhere in the world. There's yeah, going to be yeah. a few guys yeah, that are you name it, or name girls it. that are right. really doing great stuff. Exactly. Name any region in the world and you're going to sort of more or less find this same sort of phenomena. 
And a lot of the wine that's produced there is average, to put it bluntly. The difference on Long Island is that our geographic location as a, as a wine district, as an AVA, we're in the New York metro market. And so Long Islanders and New Yorkers are, because of our geographic location, are exposed to, the, to all of it, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Oh, so all the quality tiers of Long Island wine right. are, are, are around. Are, are, are present because of our, and they haven't been vetted by an importer or distributor like virtually every other wine in the marketplace, you know, by an importer, distributor, retailer, sommelier. Virtually every other wine out in, in you know, the New York market and the American market has been vetted to some degree before it lands on our shores. Whereas here, you know, you're just by being here, it's, it's here. And so for better or for worse, I mean, it, it goes both ways. You know, uh, on one hand, it's a, it's a great asset. On the other hand, you know, sometimes it, it may, you know, produce an image of Long Island wines that isn't necessarily accurate. And you have the ability to sell direct in the New York market. You don't have to go through a distributor to we, sell to a New York restaurant. That's exactly right. I mean, it's one of the privileges of, of our liquor license, of what's called a farm winery li- license, is that we can, we can operate on, on all three tiers of the three-tier system. We can function as a manufacturer a distributor and a retailer and that's exactly what we do because that's unusual manufacturer the, you know a, the world a of wine you know yeah, yeah, otherwise right right and and uh, and by the way it's absolutely essential for our economic viability the cost of doing business on long island as as a winery is as high as it is say i think i can safely say as it is anywhere in the winemaking world because of the cost of our of all of our fixed costs the cost of, of real estate you know just acquiring the land Labor, electricity—you name it. Probably taxes as well. Taxes, exactly. exactly. Like you know, I can imagine property tax on property Long taxes Island is are high. Not nothing. It's—I mean, every input that goes into what we do is high vis-a-vis the global competition. But you can shave off margin and sell direct, and it, so precisely still stay that's that's why it's essential. We we need that retail margin to to survive, and we have such a rich demographics right in our backyard. Long Islanders and New Yorkers are our best customers. I mean, we literally get people from all over the world visiting our winery, but uh, Long Islanders and, and New Yorkers continue to be our best customers. And, you know, over the years, we've developed all kinds of just unbelievable, wonderful relationships with with customers who have, some of them have been coming back since we opened, you know, for 20, 25 years and have been, have been just incredible supporters. Because a lot of times when I talk to wineries that sell direct, one of the things that they say is the customers who buy direct are more loyal over the years. Yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, again, I mean, we, we're extremely fortunate to, to have the, the rich demographics that we do. It's, uh, and and it's, it's necessary. And so it's kind of this, this wonderful sort of like holistic existence where like, you know, we couldn't, and I, I literally tell that to our customers' faces. I'm like, you know, I try not not to sound corny, but I'm like, you know, we couldn't do this without. They're like, thank you. I'm like, no, thank you. We we couldn't do this without you, and it's it's quite literally true. I mean, we could not, you know, with without being able to, you know, to get the retail prices that we do, without the the demographics that we do, where where we 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 sell almost fifty percent of what we make retail at the winery, and we need that retail margin to to survive. But it sounds like it's been successful over the years in terms of growth of the winery. Sounds like it started somewhat small and has grown in terms of acreage yeah. of vines. Yeah. Oh, certainly. When my parents started in 83, they started off with about 14 acres, and today we're up to 80. When my parents uh, opened the doors and first started selling our wine, I believe production was around two to 3,000 cases, and now we're up to about 12,000. 
And one of the things about that is you do a, a variety of different formats. You'll sell in keg, you sell in bottle. Mm-hmm. And yeah. Why that choice? Since you brought up the kegs, I mean, the kegs specifically are an example of, I, I think, you know, the age in which we live is one of the biggest buzzwords today is sustainability. And I think sustainability, I think many people agree, it's just become sort of part of the broader mandate that defines the age in which we live you know, today. And if, if we look at how we do what we do and try to be innovative and say, what, like, how can we do what we do in, in a more sustainable way without sacrificing wine quality? I, I, that should be the paramount concern. And but maybe do something radically different, and and I think kegs are like exhibit A for that that sort of thing, the wine on tap market. And so when there was this first sort of incipient market for wine on tap about five or six years ago, right away I said, you know, um, this is something I can totally get into. Just thinking it through right, you know, quickly and saying this from a winemaking standpoint, there's no reason why this can't be done in such a way that it preserves, where you're not sacrificing wine quality. In fact, you can argue that the wine quality is as good or better with wine on tap. And so we kind of jumped in right away, and you know, it's, and, and it's been really well received. I mean, I, mean I, I love the fact that we have a good selection of our wines, red, white, and rosé. Right now at the winery, I have about 80 or 100 kegs uh, ready to go. And we have you know, uh, a few dozen uh, accounts between Long Island and, and the city, that have our wines on top. And uh, it's a wonderful thing. Every keg represents 2.22 cases. That's 26 and a half bottles where you've eliminated the glass, the cardboard, the label, the glue, the tape, all that stuff. The plastic wrap has been completely eliminated. You're, you're one step up on the sustainability pyramid from recycling to reusing. And it's just uh, brilliant. And, you know, I mean, uh, producers, restaurateurs and wine directors and consumers all get it. I mean, you know, and, and, and that, you know, it's not surprising. I think that it's sort of taken off to a certain extent. Some people have said, Oh, this is just a fad or a trend. I really don't think so. I think I believe it's here to stay along with all kinds of other types of innovative packaging and wine, which I think will also continue to, to flourish. But it's an interesting moment because you have sustainability going for it and maybe some different cost structure in eliminating you know, the cardboard and the glass. But at the same time, there's probably less competition for the people who have keg slots. Like the people who are actually using True. taps, yeah. they're probably like, oh, there's only so many right. wineries that are really yeah. selling kegs. It's an interesting, yeah. It, it, but you'd be surprised. I mean, there is also a fair amount of competition. But you, you, of course, I mean, not everyone is offering wine and, and kegs. Like, um, I haven't seen the Chambertin come through yet. You know what I mean. <laughs> right, right. Like, you know, if you have right, a certain right. slot and you're trying to fill it with a wine right. and that slot doesn't move, yeah, there's only so many wines, you're one of them, right? Right, right, right. Yeah. But, I mean, it'd be, for me as a winemaker, I, I love the fact that we have our wines uh, in kegs. We also have our wine, some of our wines in magnums and double magnums. We have cork and screw cap. It's all more work for me. And we're making so many more, di- so many different labels. The, the warehousing of everything we're talking about is a nightmare, but I, I, I love being able to offer just different formats, different options. It's fun. And so where do you see that going? I don't, you know, I don't think we're like seriously considering anything radically different in terms of the um, packaging other than, you know, I, the next sort of thing I kind of see is, is taking the kegs beyond just a restaurant, but into people's, I mean, we've had some retail interest already. And there's already there are already retail options for that sort of thing, and uh, that's something I can see exploring in the future. 
it sounds like you have certain wines that you make every year and then certain wines that you make somewhat rarely. Yeah. What are the wines that you make all the time and what are the wines that you rarely make and how do they kind of differ? We yeah, we our core portfolio that we always make uh now, I mean now meaning the last sort of 10-15 years, we've always making a barrel fermented Chardonnay, classic Burgundian style fermented in small, you know, 225 liter French oak barrels, uh surly aging, batonnage, uh malolactic fermentation. Then we have our what we call our festival Chardonnay, which is a clean, crisp, fresh, uh, steel fermented Chardonnay. We have our dry Sauvignon Blanc, dry Riesling, semi dry Riesling, our Chenin Blanc, made in a slightly off dry style. Still to this day, the one and only Chenin Blanc grown or produced in the state of New York. Um, and why do you think that is? Because it seems like it's pretty successful for you. The only you know people ask that all the time, and I have, I always have the same refrain. I don't know, but we're happy to have a monopoly on it. <laughs> but uh, I think you know seriously, the answer probably has something to do with that. That, that Shannon's just it's less well known. It's it's not you know Sauvignon Blanc has some brand awareness if you look at the varietal as a, as a brand. I mean, whereas Shannon is just less well known. I mean that may be part of it. So from a marketing point of view, a producer might be more reluctant. Certainly, it's nothing to do with deliciousness because, uh, you know, I'm biased, but I think ours is, is, is wonderfully delicious. And it's not terribly difficult to grow. In the vineyard, it's not unlike Sauvignon Blanc. It actually shares a lot in common with Sauvignon Blanc, except that it ripens a little bit later. Although we pick it um, not much later than Sauvignon, and that might partially explain our, our style, uh, where it's picked, it's picked a little early and it's bottled very early. And so the resultant style is what I like, what I like to call it, a, a new world style. It's kind of really fresh and fruity and exuberant. And it's got this snappy, sweet and sour character where you get a little bit of a sweet attack, but then a, a ton of acid. And uh, we call it our sour patch wine or Venice lemonade. If wine were to be a lemonade, it, would, it might, might manifest itself like our Chenin Blanc. It's really, really citrus driven. And then the other wines that are sort of core to what we do are like our, our Merlot, our Cabernet Sauvignon. Cabernet Franc, and then we make a wine called Festival Red, which is like a you know a Bordeaux style red blend. And th- those are sort of the wines we're going to do every year, year in and year out. And then then our rosé has also become you know an annual, our dry rosé. We also make a van, wine we call Van Rosé, which is like a sweeter style. But that's sort of like the core of what we do every year. And then, like I mentioned earlier, in a great vintage, we'll declare it. We put it on the label. We call it a grand vintage. And in such a year, the winemaking approach is not unlike what they do in, you know, at the first growths in Bordeaux, where you have the eponymous Grand Vin, and then you might have a second label. And so in, in a grand vintage for us, we are, you know, I'm, I'm trying to, to cull the best lots to, to produce the best wine. And then whatever's left over kind of goes into our, like, if it were a Merlot, we might have a in-house, we would call it a white label Merlot in our grand vintage Merlot. The white label is the, the standard estate bottled version. Um, but that's sort of the approach we take with the Grand Vintage wines. And then we have another range of reds that we call our, you know, our single vineyard wines, where we've adopted sort of a Burgundian uh, tradition of naming the site, where over the years we found that one site really outperforms another. And we're like, you know what, we should recognize it and give it a name. And so we have our Tuttle's Lane Vineyard Merlot, Tuttle's Lane Vineyard Cabernet Sauvignon, Apollo Drive, uh, Petit Verdot. And that the, by our own definition, those represent the the top reds that our estate has produced. And then we have the late harvest wines, which we certainly don't make every year. 
Uh, normally, they're botrytis affected, and sometimes ice will freeze the grapes, so it's not a nat- natural ice wine, but will employ a, a you know a, an ice wine technique to concentrate those wines, especially if the botrytis is is less in a vintage. And lately, I've been sort of playing around with uh, what we're calling a minimalist Chardonnay, a minimalist Chenin Blanc. I just bottled, where, as the name implies, the wines are made in a very minimalist way. Nothing is done to them. Nothing's added to them other than a minuscule amount of sulfites. Uh, and they may or may not be bottled un- uh, unfiltered for white wine, which is something we hadn't done before. But, you know, again, all of these things I don't think would be possible, like, because people over, over the years have said, you know, you're producing so many different wines. Why don't you just focus on, like, Merlot or Cab Franc or whatever? And there were times where, like, you know, kind of, like, second-guessing ourselves. Maybe we should narrow down our offering. And, and we were talking about this a bit before, how the, the market here, the, the New York market, the American market, the global market, it's so exciting because uh, it's becoming more and more sophisticated People are people are into the diversity of options, and there's something for everyone. And more and more people, it's it's not about which wine critic said this, that, or the other thing, or it's it's just about what what you like. What you know, what do you find delicious? What do you want to drink tonight? What you know, what's the occasion that you're celebrating? What time of year is it? And what's going to go well with dinner tonight? And you know, I like this. It's delicious. So that must be a long harvest season for you, though. If you're making that wide style it is. of wine, it is like I said. I mean, it's I've just it's just so much more work. You know, it's um, it's a lot of work, and I I literally work during the vintage seven days a week. It's usually like from Labor Day. I might still have a couple Sundays off, and but by the end of September, it's seven days a week, and my first day off is usually Thanksgiving, and then I'm usually back at it um, all the way into the till the holidays at the end of the year, where we we bottle a lot of our our crisp fresh whites early because you know we believe in early bottling lends itself to achieving adjectives like fresh crisp vivacious zippy all, all those that fresh crisp character and early bottling lends itself to achieving that style and plus for me uh, um, i'm i'm not you know checking off on my checklist of, of wines i need to I, I need to get in the bottle and get them into you know back in the warehouse and back into the marketplace and you know, we're fortunate that some of these wines are sold out by the time I bottled a new vintage. And, and you know, another one of my father's saying is, um, try explaining aging wine to the bank. You know, we, we don't always have the luxury, luxury of just sitting on the wine and waiting for the optimal release date when, when, when we have bills to pay. What does your father and your mother tell you about the wines today? What do they think about what's happened with the wine? Well, my father is, is you know, they're both still actively involved. My father and I still uh, are working a lot on, on the winemaking together. I mean, I do all the day-to-day work at this point in the winemaking, but we're, you know, he, he's still very much involved. And, you know, I think uh, they're both very happy with where, where we're at today. You know, um, it's, it's uh, like we were talking about earlier, it's, it's, it's a, a wonderful lifestyle to, to be able to do like wine dinners and say, look, which wines are we going to pair with what, what, you know, what a chef has come up with on a menu and have a whole roster of different wines that we're proud of, that we believe in, that we think will marry, you know, terrifically with what's on the menu. And, uh, that is, you know, uh, it doesn't get a lot better than that to enjoy the fruits of your labors and have, uh, have a relationship with a restaurant where they're just putting great food on the table. And, uh, you know, of course, wine is meant to be had with food and that's when, when you truly celebrate. 
Kareem Masood of Pamanok, it's been a story of a wine from a dry country to a wet one and the challenges in between. Thank you very much for being here today. Thank you, Levy. Kareem Masood of Pamanok in Long Island. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.